Well, good afternoon. It's good to be in Folsom Bible Church after 10 days in Montana. It's not heaven, but you can see it from there in Montana. Um, but people asked, don't you miss being here? Don't you want to come back? And I said, well, no. A couple things. I remember 35 below and four foot of snow, and I, that's an easy deterrent. But also, uh, I like Folsom. I like Folsom Bible, and I, I like where God has us, and I like the task before us. And uh, we're, we're Marines, right? And we are in the front lines of combat, and anybody can move to Montana and go on vacation and be a fly fisherman, right? <laughs> Uh, but not everybody can stay in Folsom in California and uh, take on the darkness with the gospel. So um, I love it here. I really do. It's just confirmed every time I go somewhere and come back. I, I do like it here, and I, I like being with you. I, I really do. So I, I trust you are the same, that you love Folsom Bible, and, and it's, I'm looking forward to seeing what God will do in the weeks and months and however long he tarries because uh, I think it's going to get crazy. So uh, as they say up north, screw your hat down because it's going to get western. <laughs> so with all that, please take your copy of the Spirit-inspired, inerrant, sufficient word of the living God, that clear, authoritative word, and go to the book of Galatians, please to the third chapter of Galatians and find yourself at verse 19, Galatians 3, verse 19. The section that has our attention here today is verses 19 through 24. And from this section, we will see the necessity of the law of Moses or we will answer at the same time the question which Paul asks in verse 19 why the law then? What is the purpose of the law? And so if you find yourself at Galatians 3, verse 19, I should like to read, and you follow along, please, from verse 19 through 24. The Spirit moved Paul to write these words. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through the angels and the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, says my New American Standard, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has, been shut, has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23... But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, there have been and continue to be religious groups under the Christian banner who claim to be from God. They claim to be right before God. 
And they will say to experience his blessings, to be right before God, to know his favor, to be righteous, to be saved. You must add to your faith your obedience to the law of Moses. And or you must be obedient to the stipulations, to the laws and rules which they insist come from God. And they demand your obedience. This, they will say, is how you are saved. It is not merely by faith alone, but it's faith plus works. Some would say, groups even to this day, you must be baptized in order to be saved. Some would even go to say, you must be baptized by them to be saved. And others would say, you must not eat certain foods, or you must eat certain foods. Others would say, you must worship on a certain day. You must not worship on this day. You must wear a certain kind of clothes. You must wear certain kind of things on your head. And all of the things that they will say and add on, and it goes on and on and on. And there's restrictions that they like to put on what it means to be saved, what it means to be right before God. To be acceptable to God, you must jump through all of these hoops. And every group that is of that persuasion has their own version. And the list goes on and on. One thing these groups all have in common is that they ultimately reject the truth of the gospel. Ultimately. The truth that we are emphasizing here is the gospel of free grace. That's what is ultimately rejected. They all add human effort. They all add works. They all add acts of obedience. Because to them, justification is faith plus works. But this we know for certain, that is not the truth. The drumbeat of this epistle of Galatians, which is etched in our minds by this time, and echoes in our ears, because we're in the middle of the third chapter, is found in 2.16. This is the drumbeat. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. This is the drumbeat of the book of Galatians. The importance of that truth, justification by faith alone apart from works, is found in 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Christ died in vain, if that is true. If you can earn your righteousness through works of the law. We would then ask this, is his death in vain? Is salvation through another way? Or... Is there more than one way to be justified? Is the eternal Son of God confused or worse, lying when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Is he a liar? Of course not. What of Acts 4.12? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Or our favorite Awana verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And you know all the verses that we could add to that. That's just a sampling. And from the book of Galatians, we have been under this drumbeat of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, because Paul has been hammering this point 
home time and time again throughout this epistle. He has been defending the gospel of free grace from the beginning. This he has been compelled to do because of false teachers. Jewish false teachers have infiltrated the Christian fellowship in Galatia with their strong insistence on law-keeping. They said you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, in order to be justified. To them, faith in Christ is not enough for justification. You must add to that your own works of the Mosaic law, your own obedience. And this they demanded, as you know from the book of Galatians, they demanded that practice from Gentiles. In, in essence, they were saying that in order to be justified, a Gentile had to become like an old covenant Jew. You had to be Jewish. These Judaizers, like all other legalists, even up to this very moment, they reject the doctrine of justification by faith alone. To them, it is faith plus works. That is so prevalent. It is so tempting because our flesh, every one of us, our flesh has a bent towards works. That's why work systems are so effective and draw big crowds because it appeals to our flesh. Your acceptance, they say, by God is not your own faith. It's not, it's not faith that puts you under the favor of God, but it's your very own obedience and works. Now, I remind you again that faith in Christ and works of the law for justification are diametrically opposed to each other. They're two sides of the, of the spectrum. You cannot say you're trusting in Christ and at the same time trusting in your own works. They are diametrically opposed to one another. If you are trusting in your religious acts for salvation, then you are not trusting in Jesus Christ. To not trust in Jesus Christ is to not be saved. Is Galatians 3, 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Doing law, doing legalism is, has no faith a part of it. It's all reliant on your own efforts. To not trust in Jesus and to trust in yourself is not only foolish, it's damning. It is by faith alone. It has always been by faith alone. Paul says this is his gospel. His gospel was faith alone. And he vindicates his message because the accusation was this is a new message. This is not from God. This is some, this is some invention of Paul that you're saved by faith alone. But Paul vindicates his message by connecting it, as, as Pastor Max so wonderfully did last week and the previous week, he connects it to the Abrahamic covenant to show that it's always been by faith alone. Salvation has always been by faith, never by works, ever, ever. And it never will be. Because how was Abraham saved? By works of the law? Of course not. The law came 400 years after Abraham. It couldn't have been by works of the law. It's by faith. It's by faith alone apart from works of the law. Notice in chapter 3, verse 6, real quick. Notice what he says there. Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. 
the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you, Genesis 12, 3. So then, finally, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. It has always been by faith. It has never been by works. In our in the section before ours, because our section is verse 19 through 24, the section of last week, 15 through 18, Paul focuses specifically on the covenant, on the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. As you see in those verses, 15 through 18, you see that promise is used four times in 16, 17, and 18. The Spirit uses, through Paul, the word promise four times. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant covenant are promised to Abraham by God and they are Abraham's his possession by faith alone not by works God promised and Abraham believed him and righteousness was imputed to Abraham as 3 6 says it has always been that way but please notice in verse 16 of chapter 3 to whom was the promise made Abraham and Christ. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds as plural, as many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ, that is Messiah. As was stated so clearly last week, in Christ are all the blessings of God found. In Christ, all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are amen and yes, in Christ. This is based on divine promise for those who believe, for those who take God at his word that he's able to do what he says he will do to, for those who believe. The covenant of promise, as we learn in verse 17, is hundreds of years before the Mosaic law. Verse 17 says 430 years. So the promise is before the law. Verse 18 says there that for if inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted, that's a word for grace, it to Abraham by means of a promise. Therefore, it is by grace alone through faith alone. And I know we've been hearing this for months now through the first three chapters, but you know what? This is what Paul is doing in Galatians. He's beating the drum that this never leaves our mind. This never leaves our, our, what the Spirit wants from us as a result of time in Galatians is that by default our mind goes to salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone, apart from works. We should not be confused on this. The gospel is always under attack. The gospel is always under assault, and especially in the church. So in God's providence, he has us in the book of Galatians to have this cemented again in our minds so that we are not confused. People, the world out there needs a faithful church, and we need to be faithful to the gospel because where else are they going to hear it? You and I better not be confused on what Paul is saying here. The gospel that saves is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. The message of grace leads to the logical 
question that Paul asked in verse 19. Paul, if what you're saying is true and that salvation has always been by grace and that the Abrahamic covenant is, is by grace, then what in the world is the law for? Why did God, through Moses, bring the law to Israel? What is its purpose? What part does it play? Well, that's a good question. And I think we're going to break this up in two simple headings. We're going to see that the two functions of the law from our text is that the law in verses 19 to 22 is a mirror to show what is inside of us, to reflect what is truly in us. And then in verses 23 through 24, the law is a tutor. Let's go through this quickly. In verse 19, notice, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Stopping right there. It was added. It was put in front of the Abrahamic covenant. Not as additional stipulations. Because verse 18 tells us that for if inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So why the law, verse 19, it was added. Not as additional stipulations to the Abrahamic covenant. No. Not as a replacement to the Abrahamic covenant, no, but as a temporary. It has a specific purpose, does the law. And it doesn't contradict grace, it actually magnifies grace. It, it makes grace even more clear, does the law. Notice in verse 19 it says, It was added because of transgressions. The word transgression is important to get our hand so we pick it up and we look at it and look at all the angles and it basically means to step over a line. It means to step past a boundary. It means to do that which is not allowed. It's to go where you are forbidden, transgressions means. It speaks of that which is a violation of God's law. It is an act against God. Most commentators would say that it's more than what the word sin means, sin missing the mark, but it shows the real nature of sin, a crossing over, a going beyond. It is a rebellious act of disobedience against God purposely. It is a crossing over into forbidden territory. A great illustration would be David on his rooftop looking down on Bathsheba. He knowingly crossed a line that he knew that God put there. That's transgression. And this is what he says in verse 19. Why the law? If salvation is by grace through faith, why in the world did God give the law to Israel? Why did he bring it about? He says it was put in front in, in, alongside the promise of God because of transgressions. What does that mean, because of transgressions? The law reveals the true nature of man's heart. It is a mirror reflecting what otherwise could not be seen. It, it, it shows, now get this, the, 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 the law comes to show the real nature of our sin, the sinfulness of sin, the utter sinfulness of sin. It shows just how evil the fallen human heart is. At the end of Romans 7, Paul comes to that incredible uh, self-promotion text where it says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Right? The law had brought him to the end of himself. 
And the law had revealed to Paul the depths of his depravity, to which he could say, O wretched man that I am. We would not know this without God's law. Sin is some missing the mark, but transgression is purposely stepping over a line that God has put and says no further. We disregard his will. The law did not come. Now get this. Remember the legalists are saying the law was given as a pathway to salvation. Paul is saying here, no, 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 no. The law has come to show the depths of your depravity. It didn't come as a pathway to follow for salvation, but it came to show us our utter sinfulness and our then condemnation. It did not come to save. The law came to condemn. That's a big difference. (laughs) The similar thought is found in Romans 7. As Brother Max read earlier, verse 7 says this of Romans. What then shall we say then? Is the law sin? Of course not. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin, experiential knowledge of sin, except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. Now that's a fascinating text. Where does covet take place? What's another word for covet? Covet is to lust for, to lust after. To covet something. It's an inordinate desire to have something that belongs to another that ain't yours. But you wish you had it more than the person who had it. And you're willing to do anything to get it, even maybe take that dude out. Right? It's an intense word. Where does that take place? In the heart. God's law can address the human heart. Not just actions done, but thoughts and desires. This is fascinating. Paul says, I would not have known experientially coveting if the law said shall not covet. You see, the law's purpose is not to save, it's to condemn. It's to damn you and to show the depths of our depravity. That in my heart, I covet for things. Wow, in my heart. Romans 5.20 says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, Romans 5.20. In other words, the law came to show just how sinful our hearts are. That's the increasing. It's fascinating. Sin is our nature. It is present in our flesh. The law of God came to show us how utterly evil our sin is. It is direct rebellion against the commands of God. We are utterly sinful. There is none righteous, not one. The law did not come to save. It came to condemn. Romans 2.15, for the law brings about wrath. The law brings about wrath, first part of Romans 2.15. Why is that? It brings the anger of God. It brings the wrath of a righteous God because his law is broken every moment of Every day. There's no salvation from the law, only wrath. Romans 3:10 through 21. It's lengthy, but please listen. This is the final concluding indictment of Paul against both Jew and Gentile, and he spends 
uh, a lengthy text here, but listen to three Romans 3, 10 through 21. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. By the way, this is you and I as unconverted peoples, right? Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift, not slow, but swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, now listen, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that result, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, the law has a purpose. And it's not to save. It shows our utter sinfulness and the reason of our condemnation, a just penalty from a holy God. The law came to show the real nature of the existing sin. Because think of this. Before law came, was there sin in the world? Yes, of course. Sin was in our hearts. Sin was in the human heart before Moses, before the law of God. Sins were committed as a practice. Death happened because sin. But the severity of the sin wasn't fully known because the law was not there to shed light on it. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Listen to this. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Why does he say Adam until Moses? Moses is when the law was given. People died from Adam to Moses because of sin in the world. The wages of sin is death. But they didn't know the severity. They didn't know the transgression because there wasn't a law. But listen to the rest of this. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Now listen. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So get this. People died who did not sin in the same way Adam did. How did Adam sin? Against a direct command of God. Transgression. He had a law. Don't eat from this tree. You can eat from all the rest. Adam sinned directly against the command of God. People died, this text says, because sin became part of the human race, even though we did not sin against the direct command of God because we didn't have a direct command from God. So the law comes to reveal sin. Now look at our text back in Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. It was to show that our sin is utterly sinful. And then, and then in the second half of verse 19, he says, How is it that this law came about? Verse 19, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. 
having been ordained, having been appointed through angels. Fascinating. Probably demands much more time than I'm going to give it. But it's interesting here, the part that angels play in the giving of the law. We learn from Acts 7 that this one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So there we learn that Mo Moses received the law through an angel. We learn in Acts 7.53, Stephen indicts the Jewish people and he says, You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet you did not keep it. Now there's some kind of mystery there. I can't go to a verse and pinpoint and say exactly this, but God is always seen to be surrounded by angelic beings and on top of Mount Sinai, apparently angels were the means by which the law came to Moses. Moses then is the mediator, verse 19, the agency of a mediator. A mediator is a go-between, right? He goes between at least two parties. Moses is the go-between between, between the, the, the law that's ordained by angels and God and the people of Israel. So here, Moses then is this mediator. Hebrews 2.2 says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and obedience received a just penalty. Okay? So the law came through angels to Moses to the people. Okay? The mediator, of course, is Moses. He receives this. Look at the chain here. It's interesting that he, he makes this known here in verse 19, this chain, this order of how the law, which came about not to say but to condemn, came through mediators and through angels. So it's, it's the, the law is inferior to the glory of the promise because God made the covenant as Brother Max brought out in Genesis, right, where he cut the covenant and the tort only God went through, solo, unilateral. And so there is no mediator between Yahweh and Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. So that covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant because the Mosaic covenant is through creatures, angels to Moses, to the people. Okay, so it's interesting how he lays this out. But also notice, please, in verse 19, that not only is that how the law came about through the angels in the agency of a mediator, notice that it is temporal. The promises are eternal, but the law is temporal. Because look at verse 19. Until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. The law through angels is only temporary. Until it has an ending. Christ is that seed promised. The law's function then had an end date. The first coming of Christ is that end date. And all that that entails. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now that he has come, the law of Moses is no longer the obligation of those who are in Christ. Okay? As we saw previously in verses 313, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law is temporary. The law is not to save. The law is only to condemn. 
and its function was only until the, the, the Christ came. Christ redeemed us through his substitutionary sacrifice. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, is fulfilled by Christ. It is finished in him. He's the end of it. Therefore, the old is obsolete in Christ. Hebrews 8.13 compares the new covenant with the old covenant. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And what, but whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to disappear. You see, the new has come and replaced the old. The, new is te- the old is temporal. It's temporary. It had an end date. It had a function that God designed, and it's been achieved. It's been fulfilled. Hebrews 10.1, for the law, since it only has a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. The law was intermediary. Temporal. Christ is the end of it. Romans 10.4 says it explicitly. For Christ is the end. He is the, he is the termination, the terminal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He fulfills the Mosaic covenant. He fulfills the new covenant. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. He fulfills all the promises of God. In Christ Jesus, all the promises are amen, amen. You see, the law was not given to save. It was given to show the depths of our depravity. Now look at verse 20. He goes on to show that a mediator is not for one party, only for whereas God is only one. Is, it's difficult, but I, I'm going to land here that what he's talking about, notice the emphasis is on one there. He says that God is one. Therefore, the mediator is for the Mosaic covenant. There's no mediator for the Abrahamic covenant. God is one. God has made a unilateral covenant with Abraham. Yahweh alone went through the animals that were cut in half. The law was through angels, through Moses to the people, and a contract between two parties was made, between man and Israel. Israel was obligated to keep the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Do them and live. God will bless you if you obey. He will punish you if you disobey. But the emphasis in verse 20 is on the number one. And he alone, God, made the covenant with Abraham. Its fulfillment, then, is based entirely on God who acts alone on his own behalf. It's unilateral, one-sided. God acts alone and directly when he promises salvation to everyone who will receive it by faith. There is no good works to be done by the sinner for salvation. God's grace is unilateral. This is Paul's point that he's hammering through Galatians. And he comes at it from every possible angle. The Abrahamic covenant is superior to the Mosaic. The law was added to show the depths of our depravity, not to save us. And look at verse 21. Since 
it came through angels, and it, since it went to Moses, is the law contrary to the promises of God? In other words, is Moses contrary to Abraham? Are there two different ways of righteousness? A Jew could say, yes, we, because they thought highly of Abraham, and the Jews certainly thought highly of Moses. Did the Jews think, you know what, Paul, you're talking about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the promise, but now that Moses has come, God has designed another way of salvation. Paul is saying, since there's no mediator, is the law contrary to the promises? He says in verse 21, as strong as he can say it in the Greek language, may it never be, or some translations say, God forbid. God forbid. It cannot be at odds. The laws from God and the promises from God. But there's different functions and different purposes that are distinct from one another. The law's distinct purpose was to condemn sinful man. The Abrahamic covenant is the promise of salvation for the sinful man who believes. You see, Moses gets you lost. Moses saves you, or Abraham saves you by grace. You see, you don't, you don't come to salvation through Moses. Think of what the law says. The law says the soul that sins must die. The wages of sin is death. Look at verse 21. Why is it that it's not contrary for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. The law is not able to give life. If it was able to give life, then Moses would be in contradiction with Abraham. But the law cannot give life. That is eternal life, divine life. And it's connected with righteousness. The law cannot impart righteousness. The law cannot make you righteous. The law only condemns. The law cannot save. It only damns. It was not given to save, but to show the utter sinfulness of sin, and therefore to show our rightful condemnation, our desperate situation before God. It doesn't impart life. It brings death. Why then would you think you can get saved by keeping the law? You see, they don't understand Moses. And there's lots of groups around us who don't understand Moses either. They don't understand the gospel. In the look at verse 22, it starts with a strong contrast. But the scripture, just as Paul did back in 3.8, the scriptures personified as God. It's God's word. It's God's authority, verse 21. But in contrast to what Verse 21 says, verse 22 says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. The word shut up is an awesome word. It's, it's to confine. It means to enclose. It's used of a, of a net in Luke 5, 6, encircling a catch of fish. To shut up, to confine, to enclose. It's used of a, a guard, a prison guard, to enclose around a prisoner. It's used in Romans 11.32, for God has shut up or surrounded all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. It is the clear testimony of the scripture that all condemned sinners, all of us, are guilty before God. And that is true of both Jew and Gentile. The law reveals our sin and convicts us of this very truth. 
The result of this universal condemnation in verse 22 is that the promise of God for salvation, for life, for righteousness that is found in the seed in verse 22, look what it says, would be given to those who believe. But the scripture shut up everyone and closed everyone under sin. There's no escape from this net. There's no escape from the enclosure that is sin and disobedience and condemnation. The result of that is the rest of verse 22. So that the promise by faith, the Abrahamic covenant in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You cannot work your way out of this net. You can't cut your way out. You can't jump out. You are enclosed. You are damned and you are dead. And the result of that is that you would believe in Jesus Christ and the promise of Abraham would become yours when you believe in Christ. You see, the law is to damn you. It's not given to save you. Get away from that. There's so many systems that are works-based. The temptation for us, even here in ourselves, is to find ourselves thinking that I'm more favorable before God because of what I do, because of my perceived obedience. You don't even know the depths of your disobedience when you do obey. That's ridiculous. It's all of grace. We need to really stand on this. We need to understand this. That salvation, justification is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, entirely. You add works to that, you damn yourself, you sink your ship. You cannot, and you cannot jump out of this enclosure of sin. It's impossible. The law damns you. Yes, but I don't commit adultery. Yeah, but you covet. And James says you're guilty of the whole law if you break one of them. Do you see? And if you break it only once in your life, how about this command? We're like the rich young ruler, you know, we're pretty sure of ourselves. But do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? 24-7. The moment you don't, you just sin. Wow. And that sin damns you to hell. That sin is what encloses you, you see? Incredible. This is what Paul is saying to these Judaizers. They have a wrong understanding of Moses, and they don't understand Abraham, I'll tell you. So the law reveals of both Jew and Gentile our lack of righteousness and spiritual destitution. Therefore, the need of grace. The law comes to show our need of grace, our need of salvation, our need of a Savior. Verse 23, please. Look at this here. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. You see, he uses the word shut up and enclosed in verse 22. Verse 23, he comes to show here, until faith came in Christ, we were kept under lock and key by the law like a, like a prison guard. We were prisoners condemned to death on death row. The law was a jailer who held us in custody those who were subjected to sin in order that they should not escape, get this now, the consciousness of their sins and their liability to punishment. You see what the law does? It pricks and affects your conscience. And now your conscience re realizes the depth of my depravity before God, the darkness of my soul, 
before God. That which God has always known, always known. And yet he hasn't cast us away. And yet he went to the cross and died for those who are utterly sinful. The law is to reveal it to us, not to him. Isn't that fascinating? The law came to show us, us, that which God has always known. It's incredible. It magnifies grace. You see, the law magnifies grace when you understand it rightly. It, 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 it pricks the conscience. It informs the conscience of our sin and our liability to punishment. The law reveals that we truly deserve righteous indignation. It shuts our mouth and closes up any argument. So why in the world would anybody think that you're going to be justified through keeping the law? It's because you're ignorant. You've been taught poorly or you're not saved. That's what Paul's saying. It's that important. In Romans 3.19, listen to this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that, get this, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, both Jew and Gentile. The law comes to put us all under that accountability. Not only does the law reveal our hearts as a mirror, condemning us as guilty sinners, deserving of eternal punishment and judgment, the law cannot save, was never intended to save, but it has a connection to justification. And how is that? In verse 24, it is a tutor. We go from a mirror revealing ourselves, and now the law is called, in verse 24, a tutor. Therefore, the law, the law of Moses has become our tutor. This is fascinating to me. I like words. Words are amazing to me. Probably because I'm Oki and I have a vocabulary of about 23 words. So anytime I can add to it, it's kind of cool. <laughs> you know? And so the word tutor here comes from a Greek term which means a child leader. A child leader. It is a word used of a slave employed by both Greek and Roman families and the, the father would put this tutor, this person, in charge of a boy who's basically from age 6 to 16. This child leader, tutor, watched the boy's behavior at home, was constantly with him, attended him when he left the home, go to the marketplace, or when he went to school. The tutor walked with him. He was his constant companion. He was given authority by the father over the boy to discipline him as it was needed. And I can only imagine that this tutor had to be a tough dude because once that boy got into his teens, you had to be a tough dude to make sure that boy obeyed you. I, I just know that because I know myself, right? I know that would be an interesting test. So the tutor had to be rigid. The tutor had to be strong. The tutor had to have authority. And the tutor's purpose was to discipline, okay? He was in charge of the external ex uh, education of the child, of his conduct, of his courtesy, his table manners, his general deportment, how he acted. That was the job of the tutor. And so this was distinguished from a teacher. The, this, this, this child leader was not a teacher. He was a supervisor. He was an overseer, but primarily a disciplinarian. He was a disciplinarian. He would correct manners, right? Like the old nuns with the with the rulers whacking on your hands, <laughs> right? Those who went to Catholic school, right? But the goal was to bring up this 
boy to be an adult son. That was the goal, to raise them up, train them to be functional adult in society, to be an adult son. That was the goal. And it was a goal that could not be waited. The boy under the tutelage of a tutor couldn't wait till that day came because it was not a pleasant thing. It was not a pleasant thing. The goal was to to reach a certain maturity determined by the father. And once that was reached, the tutor was released of his duty. Okay, no longer needed. So Paul uses that picture that was common for the Greeks and the Romans to describe the function of the law of Moses. Like a tutor, the law disciplined us, it punishes us, it threatens us, it keeps us under strict orders until faith in Christ. Look at verse 25 and 26, which will be next week, but look at what it says. But now that faith has come, you see that's a goal, we are no longer what? Under a tutor. It's been reached. It's been accomplished. Remember, the law is temporary. That's what verse 19 says. Until the seed would come to whom the promise was made. The law is not to be under, is not to be functioning eternally. It has a termination point. And the termination point in your life is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. The law designed by God has accomplished the divine purpose. Faith in Christ. Christ is the end of it. The goal of God in the law was to lead us to repentance and faith in Christ, to turn away from our self-trust, from ourselves, from our works, to trust in Christ and Him alone. So why would... So look at this again in 24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, to adult sonship. So that result is that we may be justified by faith. So that we would be justified by faith in Christ. Is this not the Abrahamic covenant? It's the Abrahamic covenant. To believe. The law did not, was not brought in to save us as a pathway to salvation. It came to condemn us, to show our utter depravity and destitution. And it was to lead us, when we followed the law, it was to lead us to the cross. To faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it says there in 24. So that we may be justified by faith. The covenant of promise. So we could say this. The purpose of the Mosaic law is to drive you to the Abrahamic covenant. The purpose of the law is to drive you into the arms of the seed to whom the promises were made. That's the purpose of Moses. To drive you to Abraham, you see, not to keep you in Moses. The law is necessary to convict us guilty sinners worthy of his righteous condemnation. When, it's, when the law is accompanied by the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to a person's soul, you stand before God like Luke 18 in the publican, and he beats on his breast and says, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what we're talking about. That's when the law is, is plowing up stony ground, the fallow heart that is, that is hard and, and cold to God and insensitive to the things of God. When the Spirit brings the law, He convicts you and brings you down low so that you do not trust in yourself. He humbles you so that you come to the cross and all you can do is, Lord Jesus, forgive me. 
That's when the law is bearing fruit. That's when, that's when you know you can do as Paul did in Philippians 3, 7 when he says, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. How do you get there? It's because the law convicted you and showed yourself to yourself in your need of a Savior. You see, Moses was not given to save. It was given to damn you. The law reveals the utter wickedness of our hearts that our sin is purposeful, intentional against God. It is an intentional rebellion against God's commands. It is the mirror that shows this to us. This is our heart. How's that for self-worth? Right? How's that for self-exaltation? I'm a dirty, rotten sinner in need of a Savior. It not only is a mirror to show us ourselves, that which God has always known, but as we just saw it, is a tutor who keeps us under its strict demands and punishment until it leads us to faith in Jesus Christ, the seed. In closing, just listen here. When you come to see yourself as evil, as God defines it, and see yourself as damned under the righteous indignation of a holy God and in need of a Savior, and you cannot save yourself, when you come to see Christ as that Savior, you will sell all to have him. You will count all things loss. What in the world would you hang on to to keep you from being spared the wrath of God? You see? The law comes to damn. You beat your breast, as we said in Luke 18, and cry out for mercy. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And you place all of your trust as you are cognizant of, as you understand, as you have comprehension. You see, you grow in this because you can't fully understand everything. But to the degree that God has revealed you, you give it all away to have him. And tomorrow he'll show you more that you're clinging to. And if you understand the gospel, you throw it all away to have him. And then it goes on and on and on until you die, until he takes you home to glory and you see Jesus face to face. See, it's the work of grace to do that. It's the work of the law. Law and grace working together in the sinner's heart brings him to the point of humility before a righteous God. But it brings him to the point of trusting him. The one who condemn you and the one who does condemn you is also the one that says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Praise God. Praise God. Is that not beautiful? We place all our trust in him. It is then that you are in him. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, the law has accomplished the divine purpose you come to the foot of the cross and trust in Christ and you are now in Christ and now all the promises of God are yours because you are in Christ. All the blessings of Abraham are for you, the believer in Christ. The law does not and cannot save, but when under its piercing gaze and weighty demands and cutting conviction, it drives you to the world's only Savior, Jesus Christ so that we would believe in him and him alone. Wow. So where are you in our final thoughts? Are you trusting in yourself? 
Are you trusting in the Savior? Do you realize the law is not for you to keep and to check off, but the law is to show you that you cannot check off? <laughs> the law is to drive you to Christ. Are you looking to Him and to Him alone? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Who in the world would do that except the one that realizes the depths of their depravity? Yes, Lord, yes. So I commend him to you. I commend him to you afresh. Look to Jesus. Love him. And would you, in our, as we close in prayer here, would you join me in thanking him for his incredible plan and amazing grace? Let's pray. Father, we praise you today that you have provided a way to escape your condemnation. You have, by free grace, sent a Savior to pay the penalty, to be the curse in our stead, so that we, by believing, then would be recipients of all the blessings you promised to Abraham and to his seed. Oh, Father, thank you for salvation. I pray, Father, that those who you have saved, who are here, that we would leave this place with a heart filled with thanksgiving and wonderment that you would save such a sinner and we would go out into this dark, hopeless world with this message of salvation by grace alone. Father, those here who have not bowed the knee, I pray that you do not let them go another moment. You humble their hearts and you bring them to the foot of the cross. May the weight and conviction of their sin that, their, that your law brings about be, be weighing heavy upon them, Lord, that they see Christ as their only Savior, only hope, and they will, they will burst through the doors violently to be saved. We give you all the praise and all the glory for you are worthy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.